everyone. Thank you so much for watching another Weaviate release podcast, releasing Weaviate 1.23 with Weaviate co-founder and CTO, Eddie and Dillocker. This is such an exciting release of Weaviate, really in my view, uh, setting that next stage into the AI native database and this uh, customizing the vector database per tenant. And this is a massive production uh, feature and Eddie is really going to explain these details of how all this came together. So as with all of our Weaviate release podcasts, we have chapters that go through each of the new features. So if you want to skip ahead to the thing that's most relevant to you, then by all means, we have uh, lazy shard loading, a flat index with binary quantization, auto PQ, default segment for PQ, and then auto resource limiting, generative any scale, and then an update to the nodes uh, endpoint API. Uh, so Eddie, and firstly, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's been a while. Also super excited. As you said, 1.23 is, is an amazing release with lots of production readiness features, and that's what it's all about. Yeah, amazing. So I think um, in this theme of kind of maybe, yeah, I think our last podcast was uh, the release podcast was the 119 podcast. And we did our in-person podcast in uh, San Francisco that unfortunately wasn't recorded. But uh, so if we can maybe even set the stage before we dive into lazy shard loading with um, this uh, multi-tenancy, native multi-tenancy in Weaviate, uh, tenants as a first-class citizen, the design around um, shards. And if you could just kind of uh, tell this whole story. Yeah, uh, so tenants as a first-class citizen is the perfect summary of, of what the feature really is because when we design it, one thing that we wanted to make sure is that we, we don't just make a tenant. So a tenant in this case is a user grouping of data. So if you have your own app and you have users or user groups, you don't want to search uh, or you don't want your users to search through vectors of another user. So the example that I use uh, that I used in, a, in a, a previous talk that I really like is if you have this sort of chat with your hard drive kind of example, like a mixture of ChatGPT and, and Dropbox, you would want to chat with your own data, but you wouldn't want someone to chat with your data. So you have this, this kind of separation. And you could do this without any vector database specific features or I guess filter is also a specific feature, but without any multi-tenancy specific features by just setting a field and then filtering for this field. So you could say user one, two, three, and then you would set where user equals one, two, three. But the problem with this is, is that everything is tied together. If this grows, you have this massive single index and, and it's it's very hard to either move stuff around or, or, or be sort of more, more dynamic. And what we're seeing right now, all these new features, they build on this ability to to have this separated and have this dynamic. And, and um, more precisely, what that means is every single tenant is a self-contained unit in VV8. And because it's a self-contained unit, you can do whatever you want with it, basically. You could say you could deactivate it, activate it, and deactivate it. You could load it lazily. You know, we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a second. But yeah, it's kind of this foundation of really making this, no matter how many tenants there are, each tenant is self-contained and that enables a lot of other things. Yeah, amazing. I, I, that talk you gave at the AI conference, which will be linked in the description of this video as well for people listening, it, it, I thought it was so inspiring the way that you described how you reduce the memory overhead. And then I love these directions for the future you outlined about the, uh, the, the active and inactive tenants and how you think about managing memory and this kind of thing. And so maybe if I could ask one more question before we dive into lazy shard loading is, um, so uh, I took away from your talk at the AI conference that the key difference between, uh, say, using just collections as tenants where each class is, you know, tenant one, tenant two, and and now the new native support is this um, change from consistent ring hashing to uh, having a lookup list. And that, and my understanding is that significantly reduces the memory. Is that a correct understanding? 
yeah, it, it makes it much simpler. Memory is a, a side effect, like the memory reduction is a, a side effect, but it's just this this one to one mapping basically. So, and this is this is the same thing as um, with using a, a large uh, index and filtering it down. You could still end up with data that's spread across different nodes, and and with the the multi tenancy, this is much simpler. This is essentially a one to one mapping, and then one tenant would be. Uh, sort of located specifically on one node, or if you have replication on multiple nodes, but it would be a sort of a very easy, cons I don't want to say consistent because the alternative is consistent hashing, but it's still consistent <laughs> in the sense of like, it's it's a lookup table. You just put in the tenant name and VBA tells you, yes, this tenant is scheduled on this particular node. And and that's very, very simple. Yeah, super cool. So so I've seen, uh, without giving too many details on the podcast, I don't know, but I've seen you've been doing some like crazy load tests of like how many tenants can you put into Weaviate, how many, um, you know, and then vectors in each of them. And it's also interesting. So, so is is this how the kind of the lazy shard loading, like how exactly you, you start up Weaviate and could you dive a little further into what's new with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to the load test when we talk about the the flat index because I think that's also a mm -hmm. crucial component of of the load test. Like we couldn't have done it without that new features. Slide, slight teaser for the next section. <laughs> but on on lazy chart loading, so the idea is very simple, because we have these individual tenants. That means we could have could end up with a lot of them. So, for example, um, I think in a previous blog post, we said something like 50,000 or so is that the most that you could have on a single node, but then you could add more nodes and, and scale it uh, linearly. Uh, but with, with 50,000, what that means is if you start up a node, and of course, in a, in a production environment or in a container environment, startups are very frequently because you, they could happen because you, you updated something or just because the, the infrastructure changed, the underlying infrastructure changed, or because, um, yeah, I don't know, something crashed or something. So, so startups are a pretty frequent thing. And with 50,000 tenants, you would have to sequentially load 50,000 tenants. And this is typically disk-bound because they have to be, be loaded from, from disk. Not everything has to be loaded into memory, but still you need to go, go through them. So what we would see is with a 50,000 uh, node, or sorry, not a 50,000 node, a 50,000 tenant uh, node, startup would all of a sudden take three minutes or five minutes or seven minutes. And that's a very long time because that's that essentially blocks you from, from using media. So one way around that would be with replication and with replication, another node that's currently not starting up could take the traffic. But still, if you replace three nodes uh, and they each take seven minutes, that's already a 20 minute sort of event. <laughs> and now imagine a, a hundred or a thousand node clusters of that that just doesn't scale whatsoever. So lazy chart loading is the idea that rather than loading everything up front, why not just load it on demand? And um, the, the, this is built in a way that it has uh, zero user impact or almost zero user impact. The idea is at startup, we just start up right away and VV8 is ready, it's reporting us as ready. And then if a request comes in for a tenant, and here we're again sort of making use of the fact that not every tenant is active at the same time, right? Like immediately after startup, yes, even if there's lots of traffic, traffic you might get requests for, for multiple tenants, but it's very unlikely that you would get a request for every single tenant on that machine in one second after after starting. <laughs> so whatever the, the, the startup traffic pattern is, every shard or every tenant, because we have that tenant to shard mapping of, of one to one, would just be loaded on demand whenever the request comes in. And the nice thing is that the, the sort of penalty for that is that the time penalty, latency penalty is very, very small. You almost don't notice it at all. And then in the background, we're still loading up those tenants sort of uh, asynchronously. So 
five minutes or so after after startup, you'd still be where you were. But if a request came in before, it would just be served and you'd be none the wiser. And all of a sudden your startup time is now two seconds rather than five minutes and it feels exactly the same. So it's a, from an engineering perspective, it's a very, very simple change, just lazy loading, but the user impact is massive for, for these large scale production clusters. So, so our own SREs and everyone who operates VB8, hopefully snow gang. Yes, this is, this was my pain point, like startup times. And now, now that should be fixed for, for multi-tenancy cases. It's so cool. Like the whole sophistication of it with say the asynchronous indexing in the last release and now this kind of lazy shard loading it just sort of like this active inactive tenant thing, maybe prioritizing which tenants are loaded first in this lazy shard loading it. It all inspires me thinking about this kind of like self-driving database and just like, you know, how much of your data management is orchestrated by these systems. And I think this is just a perfect transition to our next key topic, which is the uh, the flat index and binary quantization. And maybe maybe before we even describe it, just explaining like how this fits into the picture of multi-tenancy, which I think is just, in my view, I, I, n- I never like to say like two adversarial things, but I think this just really sells like the production vector database compared to kind of like the NumPy is all you need argument, like having this sort of, when do you need HNSW? When do you need just brute force? And so could we dive into the story of uh, the flat index and binary quantization? Yes. So multi-tenancy was the main driver in in building this this flat index. So so for, for context, a flat index is basically just a, a brute force index. It just it doesn't use sort of any fancy graph like HNSW, which we have a couple of couple of sessions on. And I think sort of uh, our, our listeners might go like, why, why, if you already have this sort, sort of super sophisticated HNSW index, why are you now go, going back to something that you said is slower and is, is um, yeah, sort of more more primitive in a sense, because that's that's what the root for index is. But multi-tenancy plays a role here, because with what we're, we're seeing is in a multi-tenant case, the total number of vector embeddings that users have are, are massive. So they would reach out to us and say like, hey, we have 20 billion or so vectors in our in our system. And then first things like, oh, wow, that's a pretty large scale. But then you ask them, so how many users is that? And how many vector embeddings per user is that? And then typically it's something like, oh, it's, it's a lot of users and it's only about 10,000 or 15,000 or maybe 100,000 embeddings per, per user. And all of a sudden, these 20 billion aren't that many vectors anymore for for what is part of one search. And this is sort of where the, the tenant isolation, again, um, plays a key role. If you only have 100,000 embeddings to search through, um, it doesn't really matter that there are 19 billion, 999 million, I don't know, a lot of others. <laughs> it doesn't matter that, because you're, you're not searching through them. You're really only searching through this, this small fraction. And depending on what your latency goal is, this is something that's easily brute forceable. And then I'll get into the, the binary quantization in a second. But let's for, for, for now, let's even just ignore the binary quantization. Let's just pretend that doesn't exist. Let's just say we're, we're brute forcing the, the continuous vector embeddings. This is now, it, it's completely feasible because it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a much smaller scale per tenant. And without the multi-tenancy feature, this wouldn't be feasible because without the multi-tenancy feature, we'd now say, okay, we have all these 20 billion vector embeddings in, in a single index. Um, and now just the work that we would have to do to narrow this down to 100,000 would be so much. Like, for example, it would be um, spread out all over. 
so even if you have we have the the, the uh, roaring bitmaps and everything to tell you exactly these are the IDs that need to be matched. But just imagine this this I don't know multiple terabyte block on disk. And now you have a vector embedding here. You have one here. You have one here. So you're always reading this like tiny fraction, doing a disk seek. And yes, disks aren't spinning disks anymore. Disk seeks are much faster. But still, if you're if you're seeking for every individual vector embedding, that would just be super super slow. But because we have the tenant isolation, is really just one index. It's one index. And and that's optimized for, for having everything um, in this continuous segment. And um, now all of a sudden, this is, this is, this is very fast. So I need to, <laughs> need to dive deeper into two more things that I just touched upon. One is um, how this is stored on, on disk. And then the second thing is maybe before how it's stored on disk, the fact that it's stored on disk, because a flat index doesn't necessarily mean that it's stored on disk. It could also just be a, a uh, in-memory index. And there's just no no graph, for example, so compared to, to HNSW. Um, but what was important for us for for the flat index was there should be an option for it to be disk-based because we don't want the the memory usage. And this is um, the, the, the low test that you mentioned about. This is something where you could easily see there that you have very large scale setups that, that require basically no memory because everything is, is on disk. Um, and then the second thing is, how is this stored on disk? Uh, and this is where our, our engineering team uh, managed to use our existing LSM store. So we, we've talked a bit about thinking in the past about the LSM store and the, the HNSW index. And it was always the LSM store was for the inverted index and for the object storage. And now we're actually using that part and using it for a vector index as well. And what the LSM store is extremely good at is handling deletes. So this index does not degrade whatsoever with deletes. Because in an LSM store, a delete is just an append. So it's basically a new segment. And then over time, these segments would be merged. And specifically on the, on the flat index, they're actually force merged into a single segment because a single segment then is, is again, um, very, very efficient to, to just um, read it from, from sort of beginning to end and, uh, and uh, brute force those vector embeddings. Um, okay, that's, that was. <laughs> I'll give you a chance to ask some questions before we <laughs> before we touch upon um, binary quantization. And that also gives well, me coffee. Yeah, I love I love the the diving into them. I'm so interested. Like, I think kind of the high level thing for me is like the most common thing I'm seeing is people building some variation of chat with your documents. Some of your users have a hundred a thousand documents. Others have a million, and that's why you needed a separate, uh, you know, different indexing. But now this this thing of reusing the LSM for the brute force. Okay, so sorry. So I'm I'm a little slow. Forgive me. The so so I under I think everyone listening probably understands this concept of you have all the vectors in memory and then you can brute force them in memory. But to to have them on disk and then it, could you kind of maybe slow it down a little bit? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. How? It's 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 in sorry. You can think of this as a very simple thing. You could think of it just having all vectors. In a, in a continuous file where you just say like vector embedding one would be the first. So, so let's use 1536 dimensionals. Uh, dimensions, that's um, four kilobytes per vector embedding. So, uh, sorry, four, four bytes per vector embedding. So that's six kilobytes for, for one vector. So you could just imagine a file on disk where the first six kilobytes are, are the first vector, the next six kilobytes are the next vector and so on. And then you have this sort of continuous byte stream that you just go through in one go and, and disks are very efficient in just sort of starting a read at one point and going through through all the way. And then where the LSM store comes in is if there was no LSM store, you could just create a file like this, but you would have to know all the vectors in 
in their order, basically up front. But now if say a specific vector was deleted and a new vector was added, now all of a sudden the simple file structure would have gaps in there and it would sort of grow. And then you'd have over time, you'd have larger gaps and this sort of nice continuous file idea, which is super efficient for disks, this would go away over time. But the LSM store, actually the, the goal of the LSM store and, and, and in particular in the way that it's tuned for, for this use case, the goal is to always get back to that single file without gaps. So even if there are deletes, yes, temporarily something would be appended and maybe temporarily there would be a gap or something that, that would be skipped. But over time, it would converge into the single uh, file again. And then basically we, we have a, a low test. Uh, maybe we can, can include the, the uh, graphics um, as an overlay. We had a, a low test where we tried constantly deleting and, and like millions of deletes over time, and both the insert latency and the query latency was not affected. So, so this is this is great also for for use cases where where you have this sort of constant, um, yeah, deleting and and and, and updating um, as well. Yeah, it's so cool. I uh, I read uh, data intensive designing data intensive applications from Martin Clement from uh, John Trengrove's recommendation, which is sort of helping me <laughs> catch up a bit. And that I they one of the examples is with this hash map where you have the the byte stream, and uh, so just maybe for people listening who are kind of at my level and trying to look for something to to keep up. But um, so my question then is. So I have this question for you, generally kind of looking at the philosophy of this kind of like self-driving databases, as Andy Pavlo describes, I've been really obsessed with this idea where it's like uh, the database is optimizing how the data is stored on disk. And, you know, you've clearly <laughs> this idea of like brute forcing within the LSM store, it's already like uh, a pretty low level optimization. And so I'm curious with things like, like another example that I've also got from that book is better understanding like row-wise versus column-wise layouts of data on disk and how like, you know, row-wise is optimized for transactional processing, column-wise for analytical processing. And so like, what do you think about this kind of philosophy of how much the database optimizes how it stores your data on disk for your particular workload? Yes, I think this is, this is a super important um, aspect of sort of making everyone's lives easier by having a database that does this this for you. Because coming back to that simple file, like you could argue, I don't need a database. I can just create that file myself. But the moment that updates and deletes come in, it gets super complex. And and this is one of those examples where the database is self-driving in the sense that, yes, it it over time, it will be stored in that continuous file again, and the database will just do it do it for you. You just query, you just add new objects, you you update them as you wish, and the database will make sure that it stays, stays efficient. And as for, for row-based or, or column-based access, you can kind of think of this, this brute force index as a, a column-based uh, data structure because the, the, the vector embeddings are part of a full object. And the object, while the object itself would be stored row-based, so one key, one object, and the object would contain the vector, the vector index itself only contains the vectors. And because we sort of the, the example that I gave of for the first six kilobytes being the, the, the first vector embedding, the next six kilobytes being the next vector embedding, and so on, that's essentially a column-based index. And column-based index, as you said, are, are optimized for, for analytical loads. And brute forcing through that data, that's basically an analytical query because there are no transactions involved. It's sort of touching every byte on disk. And as we said, uh, sort of, um, yeah, disks are very good at, at sort of reading continuous stuff. And that's exactly the same, same principle of, of uh, column-based index. So I guess you could say that the, the flat index is a, a columnar index. 
so <laughs> I'm trying to keep I'm learning so much from this and I think this is just I think this is just one of the most the pillars of the AI native database is this kind of topic and uh, so also kind of relating this to one of your kind of anchoring future directions from your AI conference talk was this um, uh, like cl like cold cloud storage and how that might relate is that also kind of related to this topic like I'm from your talk I understood it's like you have one tenant who you know they came and used your app and then they basically left and never came back so you know you basically throw their data away does this also relate to this optimizing the storage of data concept yes yes absolutely it is and I love sort of how all of these things how, how this is all connected because that that is you can really see sort of we're, we're really focusing on these multi-tenancy uh, production cases and you get sort of even if we ignore the the cold storage for a second you still get that cold versus hot kind of pattern with anything that's that's disk based simply because what the operating system does for you if if there is memory available it will start caching the disk basically so so it's called hmm. the the page cache and then essentially the disk or, or the operating system tries to predict what is it that you're loading from disk right now maybe what is it that you're you're likely to load next and it will sort of try to to yeah, cache the disk in in memory, and you can really see that with with the the multi tenancy in, in combination with the with the flat index. So if you have way more tenants that could possibly fit in the page cache, because of course the page cache is limited by your memory, you can see that basically every first query for a tenant is a cold query, and you can clearly see this in the in the in the latencies. So if you send if you pick a random tenant that has not been queried before, and you send hundred queries. The first query will be slightly slower than the, the rest because this is the one that actually has to hit the disk. But the uh, remaining queries, um, unless of course you you sort of did something else to destroy your, your page cache again, the remaining queries, if they follow immediately after, they will be much faster because even though it's disk-based, the operating system actually says you, you don't actually have to hit the disk. Like I have this data here and I know that it hasn't been changed so we can actually serve that from, from memory. So even though it's a disk-based index, we kind of get that that in-memory caching for free just because it's built in a way that it's that is cache friendly and and the continuous byte segments again sort of place a role here because it's much easier for the operating system to just cache i don't know two megabytes of data starting here and here rather than it being being um spread out and then where where cold storage comes in and this is an option that that's uh, currently not not part of 1.23 yet but it's the, the logical next step is we now have these these steps of the data is on disk, the data could be in page cache, but still, if you have millions of tenants with with terabytes of data, now you would still need a very large disk. So, so some of the low tests we did, like 10, 10 terabyte disks or so, where where the the disk was more expensive than than the compute. Um, so now the next logical step is rather than um, having this on disk all the time. If you know the query pattern, and again, this is where, where the self-driving database part comes in. So, so ideally, the database just figures this out for you, and you don't have to manually do anything. Um, but then we could say that, that parts of those, those tenants that maybe haven't been queried in an hour or in a day or so, we can just move them to cloud storage. And then cloud storage is way, way cheaper than, than disk-based storage. So now we can have our disks smaller on average. But nothing is free in, in engineering. It's always a trade-off. Now the trade-off is if you actually have a cold request coming in, and cold in this case doesn't just mean loading it from disk into memory. Cold actually means loading it from cold storage, so from, from cloud storage. <laughs> now you have more, more, um, more latency overhead. So it's sort of like 
The question is, are we optimizing for 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 a hot cache, basically for hot queries that are super fast, even if the, the first request comes in, but then we need more infrastructure? Or are we optimizing for lower cost, where it's maybe okay to wait 500 milliseconds or a second or so to pull something in from cloud storage? But then not just is, is it way cheaper, but also we're achieving the separation of storage and compute, where basically, yeah, as, as, as the sort of the main idea behind separation of storage and compute is you don't have to size your infrastructure for the amount of data, you can just import more because it's separated and cloud storage basically scales, scales infinitely. That's that's kind of the assumption. And then your compute could be, be constant. And that makes large scale cases where storing is more common than, than querying a lot cheaper. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that was awesome. I, so I think, yeah, personally, I'm going to need to study it to understand it all better, but I can just kind of Oh man, this separation of storage and compute, the talking about, you know, cache, memory, disk, cloud storage, it all sounds just so exciting. So just, I know we're spending a bit of time on this topic, but I think it's just so such a powerful one that I really want to dive into it. Um, this, I'm also curious if I had this question that re, somebody came up to reinvent with this problem. And I've seen this paper from uh, when we talked about with Patrick Lewis on the podcast about uh, concurrent QA, where the idea is, um, you know, Eddie and Connor, we each have our tenants. And then we maybe also share some index, like uh, say we have Wikipedia's in our same Weaviate, you know, it's one of the classes compared to the tenants. Do you, are you interested in this idea as well? Do you, uh, yeah, maybe if we could start with there and then I guess kind of I'm broadly kind of curious about like the tenant abstraction and maybe how it can be expanded into that kind of like public private case. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, so we, we see this kind of pattern in, in uh, some of our users where public private, I think is the, the exact thing where, where this makes a ton of sense. So for example, if you have say public data about public companies, like financial data is about uh, financial data about public companies, for example. So every every publicly listed company needs to release um, all these statements and reports and everything per, per year. And this is public data. So you kind of need to index it only once. But then you might have your own private data, either about private companies or about something else that's that's related to to that. And you can easily do, you can easily combine this in, in a single VV8 setup by having a single tenant class, which would be the the public data and the multi-tenant classes, which would be the, the private data sort of scoped by, by tenant. And then you can even use the, the cross-reference feature in in a way that um, what you can do is sort of you can link from a from a multi-tenant class to a single tenant class. That's fine because that's that's sort of the access pattern that's allowed. What you can't do is a, a link from a, from a, from the public to the private basically because that's the, the opposite direction. So yeah, this is this is a pattern that we do see. And um, I think there, there are more options. This is one option. So sort of this is the option where you still all have it in one VB8 instance. Another way could also be to do this more sort of at the, at the rack level where you're saying, I'm just pulling in from a different data source. We're saying like, if the public data is publicly available, maybe through Google or, or um, any way to, to sort of discover it, mm -hmm. maybe we don't need to index it at all. So you could say like, mm -hmm. okay, I'm only storing my private, private embeddings in VB8. But then if I want to enrich it with public data, I basically enrich it at, at query time and, and sort of have the LLM combine the two. And, and then, of course, like various various trade-offs, latency, um, how much do you trust sort of these public data sources to be available, to be in the right format, and these kind of things. But it's, it's a different architecture. Like you, you, you can do it in VV8 or you could do it sort of at your application level, whichever you, you prefer. Hmm. Uh, I love it. I 
I guess um, like for the OpenAI Dev Day, something that really caught my attention was this idea that you uh, chat with the well, you chat with ChatGPT such that it uh, sends internet queries to then populate yeah, exactly. your data. Yeah, and and then this idea of but you know like I, I think about like it's still private. Like if um, you know you, me, and let's say Erica are on a team, like the three of us, and then we want our conversation to be private. But so there's like. I see these tears and, and so I, I, such a great coverage of the topic, Eddie, and then uh, so many exciting ideas with this, the, moving the storage around. And then I think just to come back to the original thing, this Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we haven't even talked about binary quantization yet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so let, let's, let's dive into the, the latest updates to uh, binary quantization. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, so binary quantization is something that works. So, so currently for, for, for 1.23, uh, binary quantization is only supported in combination with the, the flat index, but over time that will be also supported with, with other indexes. But binary quantization is a specific way of, of quantizing that works really, really well with the, with the flat index. Because essentially what binary quantization do, does, and this is, this is sort of some of you, some of you listeners might now think like, oh, wait, that's, that's too simple. That can't possibly work, but it actually does. All it does is it takes this this um, this vector embedding. Let's say we again have a fifteen thirty six dimensional vector embeddings, and it completely throws away the actual numbers and only takes the sign. So if your vector is plus zero point five minus zero point three plus one point something, the only the only information that we would keep is plus minus plus. So now for for every single dimension of the vector, we have just two options, and that's basically what a bit is. And that's where, where the name binary quantization comes from. So all of a sudden, we're taking 1536 uh, a four byte. So, so that's 32 bits per, per uh, original continuous float vector. And we're representing every single dimension with a single bit. So it's a 32 times reduction. And it, it, it works really well with uh, embeddings that have large dimensionality such as a 1536 so the smaller and this makes sense right like if you have a just a two-dimensional vector embedding the sign like there's there's only this many combinations of, of signs but if you have a 1536 dimensional vector embedding all of a sudden just these combinations of signs they they retain enough information and then as with all quantization options um, you can always still rescore right so so the quantization mm -hmm. is going to be approximate trying to find the the say top 100 or so results, but they're actually not in the exact order because we don't know the exact order anymore. And then you rescore them um, for, for those 100. And this comes in super handy for, for the flat index, because for the flat index, as we said before, what we're doing is sort of continuously reading data from disk. And in our previous example, we had these uh, six kilobyte blocks. So let's say we have a thousand of them then that's six megabytes to, to read through. Now, if we can reduce the amount of data using, using binary quantization by a factor of 32, all of a sudden, this is just roughly 200 kilobytes or something. I'm not sure if the calculation is correct, but it's like 32 times reduction. And reading through 200 kilobytes is, of course, way faster than reading through 600 megabytes just because your, your disk has um, sort of a maximum throughput. Let's say it would be... Uh, a thousand megabytes per per second or so, then yeah, sort of reading just two hundred kilobytes is way faster than reading uh, a six six megabytes. And um, then of course we can still do the the, the rescoring, which is again sort of hitting uh, the disk in a in a slightly inefficient way because now we're just sort of reading a hundred individual vectors. 
but we're reading a hundred of them. So if you have say a million vector embeddings per per tenant, um, and now you're you're doing the brute force on the on the binary quantized vectors on, on all million of them, and then you're just rescoring a hundred or so, then it's it's way faster. So in sort of the 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 super simple TLDR is where given given a certain latency target, I'm not even saying a specific number, but say you have a certain latency target, and with uncompressed vectors, you could say brute force 10,000, now with binary quantization, because there's less data per vector, using the exact same latency target. Now, instead of 10,000, you can actually uh, brute force 100,000 or a million or so. And um, well, I guess, the, I guess the exact factor would be 32x, um, because that's, that's the, the reduction factor. So again, with this, this disk-based um, multi-tenancy or, or disk-based flat index in combination with multi-tenancy, all of a sudden, now your tenants can be bigger for, for the same sort of disk latency budget. Yeah, I think just kind of, yeah, just kind of like recapping, I think that perfect storm of those three things that I remember when you were first looking into binary passage retrieval, and I remember my first reaction was, wow, Eddie moves really fast with these kind of projects, and young Connor had a lot to learn, but this, uh, <laughs> like this, now we have these higher dimensional vectors that tend to like, be binarized more easily. I think at the time we we're looking at like sentence transformers, like mini LM has 384 dimensions. So if you just binarize it, I guess you lose too much information yes. compared to the, yeah. Yes. And then that rescoring thing, I think that was another discovery with quantization that has had a massive impact, right? Is how you, you know, bring the full precision vectors back into memory to get a better direction. And then understanding how it intersects with the um, that continuous disk read thing, which I, I'm learning about now, I think, <laughs> in this podcast. And yeah, that, that is really cool stuff. And I think actually, if we could, I know we have our, we told people in the beginning that we're going to go, you know, flat index, BQ, auto PQ, default segment. But I think it actually would transition really nicely to the default segment for PQ, because um, I think it relates nicely to understanding this concept of like, uh, you know, say you have the cohere vectors, uh, V2 had 4,096, I think V3 has 2048, but just kind of understanding <laughs> what we V8 is cooking with, um, uh, understanding, like we know the embedding model. So we're looking at how well binary quantization is going to work, what segments. So, uh, could you describe the kind of, uh, default segment lengths for PQ and we V8? Yes. So what our listeners need to understand is binary quantization is is very primitive in a sense. It's not a, a learned or algorithm. It's just sort of keeping the sign and throwing everything else away. Product quantization, on the other hand, is much more flexible. Product quantization actually takes your, your data or a sample of your data, clusters your data, and then tries to basically approximate sort of shorter quantized vectors that roughly represent the, the distribution in your in your data. And what that means is sort of with, with binary quantization, we said it's a 32x reduction. But with product quantization, there is no such thing as product quantization does a reduction of a factor of, of, of x, but rather it's configurable. And again, the, the, the embedding length plays a role here. So in, in product quantization, the minimum reduction that you could do is a 4x reduction. And this is simply because we're, we're representing um, uh, a four byte float 32 as a single byte. So even at that point, it's it's always a four X reduction. But then where where the magic comes in with with uh, larger embeddings is so so 
um, maybe let's go for, for a slightly easier to, to reason number. Um, let's say we have 128 dimensions and then with the 4x uh, reduction, we would already reduce this to um, to 32 sort of, yeah, or, or, or 4x would be sort of rather than 128 times four yeah, I think that that's the that's the easier way. Let, let me okay. Let me go back and let me let me uh, take the the fifteen thirty six again because then we have the the numbers that, that were already familiar before. So with fifteen thirty six, we said that that's six kilobytes simply because we have four bytes per vector embedding. But now with the four x reduction, it's actually just uh, fifteen thirty six bytes, so one point five kilobytes. So that's the the first reduction. But now what we can do is take those. We still have fifteen thirty six segments, and the segments are just smaller. But what we can do is we can combine multiple dimensions into one segment. So for example, let's say uh, we do this with a, a factor of two, then all of a sudden we would take these 1536 uh, segments and now we'd only end up with uh, 768 segments. So now each segment represents two dimensions. So now our overall compression is 4x because of the, the byte versus flow, and then 2x because of the, the uh, bunching up of of dimensions in a segment. So now our overall compression is eight times. And um, the sweet spot for a, a 1536 dimensional vector is somewhere between uh, six and eight uh, dimensions per segment. So that gives you an overall compression rate of 24 to, to 32 times. And now where, where the auto or, or the better defaults come in is um, what we would do in, in previous versions is we would rely on the user to know their data distribution and know their embedding length and what the the best dimensions per segment would be and if they didn't set anything and we were very conservative and we would just go for one dimension per segment so with all defaults all you would ever get is the 4x reduction um, but for for 1536 for example which is super common um, you can go to six to eight times on top of that so so um, now what we're doing is actually when you turn on um, a product quantization and you don't specifically set a value. Of course, if you specifically set a value, we're not gonna mess with that. We're trusting you to set the right value. But if you're not setting a, a value, we actually use more reasonable defaults giving, uh, given the, the dimensionality. So for, um, I don't actually know what the exact numbers are, but let's say for, for 128, the most we could do is maybe two dimensions per segment. And then for uh, 1536, we could do six dimensions per segment. And for these even larger ones, like the, the coherent ones you mentioned, we could do eight dimensions per segment. And again, sort of the, the self-driving vector database uh, or the self-driving database, VBA just makes it easier for you because you don't have to know sort of what the, the right value is. And, and after lots of testing and lots of production experience, we now are comfortable saying, yes, this is a reasonable default given that kind of kind of dimensionality. Yeah, it's, it, I guess it's like, um, it, yeah, I think exactly what you said. Like we can, I have seen like the test that John Trengrove has been running on like, you know, using the beer benchmarks data sets like DBPD and stuff like that to, you know, because we know the embedding models. Maybe if you're, if you're training your own embedding model or fine tuning it, maybe now it's like, okay, well, you got to figure out what segment's going to work for your custom embedding model. And I, I think like there could be this interesting orchestration where you run like, uh, like 
I've been pretty interested in the rag evaluation thing, which is all these different knobs to tune. And maybe you do want to have some kind of orchestrator of like, okay, I tested uh, eight segments, four segments, two segments, and here's what happened. <laughs> and, and, and maybe that kind of thing evolves. But yeah, so I think this would transition perfectly into uh, auto PQ and what Weaviate is now doing. I think it flows with our whole story of understanding, you know, this evolution of Weaviate is heavily focused on production cases, multi-tenancy, some tenants need, uh, you know, Brute Force, some HSW, and then PQ. Where does it sit in all this? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, so um, Auto PQ is another one. It's, it's. I think it's in the same category as as the the better default, because what we made the user do in previous versions, and this ties into into async indexing. So previously, indexing was synchronous, and for product quantization, as we just said you you it's a trained algorithm so you take a portion of your data you cluster it and then you you sort of train the the pq codebook the pq uh, a quantizer based on your data so you can or, or in, in previous versions of eva you could not just turn on pq when you had zero vector embeddings imported because there was nothing to to train on so the previous workflow was import a certain amount of your data make a pause in which you turn on PQ, but then because it's a learned representation of your data, it takes some time, so maybe 15 seconds or so. So for 15 seconds, your index would not be writable. And then after 15 seconds, um, now PQ would be on and now you have enough, now you have your, your code book basically. So everything that you would import from that point on would then automatically be um, be quantized right away. But still the, the, the workflow from user's perspective is import a bit, turn it on, wait a bit, import the rest. And it would be way easier, way nicer if you could just say PQ, yes, and that's it. <laughs> you just import it. And that's exactly <laughs> what auto PQ is. And it it, it makes use of the uh, async indexing feature that we released in 1.22. And now because this is async, under the hood, it's still the same thing. Under the hood, we still, there, there's no way around sort of starting the, the product quantization only at the point once you have enough vectors that, that, that represent your, your data. But from a user's perspective, why why would you have to, to worry about it right now from a user's perspective? You do exactly that. You just import all your vector embeddings. And then uh, under the hood, it would it would sort of not quantize them until a certain threshold is reached. I believe by, by default, it's 100,000 vector embeddings. But once they're reached, it will start uh, training the, the PQ compression. In that time, while it's training, um, all the, the uh, new vectors that you're adding, they're just added to a temporary queue. And then once the compression is finished, it's taken sort of from the queue and imported as as um, as quantized vector. So over time, you will just end up with a perfectly sort of compressed vector embedding space. And VV8 used the right moment in time to actually start training the quantizer and start doing the quantization. So again, fits perfectly well with the, the self-driving database. Yeah, yeah, I think that's been the the theme of a lot of these features is the self-driving, the the more orchestration of the vectors, and and yeah, so yeah, I think that whole topic is just so powerful. Understanding the async indexing and then how PQ is going to fit the codebook in the background, loading in the enough vectors to get the right distribution. There's maybe also an interesting discussion around like distribution shift, like your latest 100,000 vectors now are 
some different distribution. Now the compression doesn't work. And I think it, this, this kind of building block just opens the door for us to explore that kind of thing. And, but I, so I think also transitioning another, uh, another like default and we get now is this um, auto resource limiting. And I think this is one of those times I've asked you about the garbage collector before on the, on the podcast. And this is one where I'll probably just nod along <laughs> as you explain it. But so what's the new thing with uh, go mem yeah, limit it, it, and, this release is really packed full of new features. I already forgot about this one. Uh, so yeah, um, this is a very, a very simple one, but a very important one for for production. So we we've talked in the past about about I think around don't, don't remember when it was. It was in in Go one dot nineteen, but I don't know what what VB eight version it was when we introduced the the Go mem limit flag, which basically tells the Go runtime this is the the memory that you have available and. Sort of you can you can make use of that memory, but never go above that threshold because then you could risk your your VBN instance being killed. And that was a that was a production lifesaver basically because if you set that value correctly, now all of a sudden, I mean, you could still run out of memory if you if you did if you did just did something like I don't know provision a machine that was just too small, but at least you couldn't run out of memory anymore just because of misconfiguration or or. Or rather, just because the, the runtime sort of assumed that the machine was larger than it actually is. But the downside was that you would still have to set that variable. And this is error prone. Because you could, for example, you could change your infrastructure, you could sort of resize your cluster, and all of a sudden now it has. Uh, if you if you size it up, it could have more memory, or if you size it down, it could have less memory. Um, and you would always have to make sure that the variable is, is set correctly. But in a, at least in a, in a sort of containerized production environment, this information is actually present in the environment because you have these C group limits that, that basically tell the operating system or, or the container uh, containerization orchestrator, this is the, the limit for this particular container. So all that the auto mem limit setting does is it actually reads that value from the environment. And if you're not setting that explicitly, it, it just takes that value. So that makes it harder to misconfigure VV8 based on, on this one setting. And I think there's a there's a second one, which is the the auto max proc setting, which I, mm -hmm. I won't go into too much detail, but basically this is this tells the tells the runtime how many CPUs are available. And this is on a shared Kubernetes cluster, for example, you could have a, a physical uh, a node that has say 48 CPUs, but because you're running other stuff on there as well, you're only giving um, VV8, say, six of them, then um, it's just way more efficient if the runtime knows that it only has six available rather than sort of having 48 available, but be limited to only use a total of, of, of six. So that's mm -hmm. another one of those settings where we just sort of optimize this a bit and, and take the value from the environment automatically rather than having the, the user or the operator set it manually. Hmm. Yeah, it's also it's all. Uh, I guess for me, my perspective on it all, it's like it's uh, joining the vector database company has been learning way more about computers than I was maybe originally planning with going into machine <laughs> learning. And, <laughs> and I remember Abdel when he was building the auto PQ and and he was debugging um, the async indexing with the codebook fitting and showing this like heap allocation with the garbage collector and it was just yeah all of it just a ton of engineering goes into Weavey and it's all super cool to learn about. Um, so I think um, before, I think our concluding topic will be this kind of LLMs, a little more higher level topic. Um, if we could also uh, cover the nodes endpoint update. And um, so I understand that's also related to multi-tenancy and just kind of 
uh, reducing what you get with the nodes API because when you have these you know millions of tenants, you know, <laughs> this massive uh, rest the response for the nodes is yeah. Can maybe talk a little bit about what's new in the nodes API? Yeah, yeah. So that is that is um, it's a very simple change, but it it makes it a bit more user friendly because as you said in in previous versions, it would sort of list everything that's currently scheduled on one particular node. So in our previous example, we said um, something like 50,000 tenants per per node. So now if you have a 100 node cluster with 50,000 tenants each, all of a sudden you have this massive list of, of um, information that you might not care about. Um, so what it does is by default, it re reduces the verbosity of this uh, uh, endpoint a bit, and it just gives you the summary. And if you do want the details, you can still set a flag to, to actually show all the details. This makes it I think we had one one test case where all of a sudden the simple endpoint just returned seventy megabytes of JSON or something. It was like, okay, no, that's that's too much. <laughs> let's let's reduce this by default. And now it's just this very compact JSON construct. And if you if you do need the detailed info, you can set a flag and still get it. Yeah, super cool. Awesome. So the, this anchoring topic, I think, is the the open source large language models. I think the current state is a lot of people using Weaviate are building retrieval augmented generation or use the vector database to provide context for the large language models. And we're recording this podcast at just such an exciting time for open source language models. Uh, Mistral has published their their mixture of extras model and and they did it by publishing like a tweet that has a torrent link to download the weights and it was like a really clever marketing move and um so our generative any scale module is now plugging in uh the the llama series of llama 70b 13b 7b as well as um uh, mistral 7b and the code llama 34b and uh so quickly before diving further into any scale eddie and i just want to get your perspectives on like uh, open source large language models and and how that could shake everything up. Yeah, I think it's it's such an an importance of being being part of the the open source landscape and and having both non open source and open source models. Of course, there's there's sort of you're you're in in the open source camp. You know, <laughs> like you want you want that that research is happening behind closed doors also to make it to the, the the public and and just more more models is better right so more more different players trying to do research and coming up with some something better that's that's better for everyone but also from an operations perspective um what enables our users with privacy concerns they can host VV8 completely in their own environment so in the in the sort of uh, we, we call it bring your own cloud where you can run VV8 end-to-end in the customer's VPC or even on-prem if, if, if they would want to. Uh, but then if they use an LLM, that's not part of that. That's just sort of sending data over the, the wire to, to one of the, the providers that currently doesn't support um, hosting that in your own tenant. Then kind of you have that, that privacy and data ownership in the storage part, but still you're sending everything over the wire for, for the rag part or for, for, for the LLM integration part. Um, so having open source models that can also be self-hosted, I think is a great opportunity for, for those users. And, and I know that not everyone has these, these um, sort of data storage and privacy concerns, but some industries do. For, for some industries, there, there's just no way around it. And having the ability to run those open source models alongside the database completely yourself end-to-end, -end, I think, is a massive opportunity for, for those who currently just can't give their data away. Yeah, I think that's, that's a massive 
like one of the most common questions at um at the reinvent conference was people who want to run it in bedrock to you know run weaviate also in aws and have that sync up and yeah i think so i think any scale probably also has some option like that. and i think any scale is quite an impressive company my, my little story with this i even have this little sticker here for as i tell the story <laughs> i i saw this tweet from uh, robert the ceo of any scale that was like you know 25 cents per 1 million tokens inference and i was like that's super cheap. And so I, you know, I went over to their booth to talk to them. And I mean, it's the, the, I think the, the big thing to say here is that the, the cost of LLM inference is going down and that will make all the rag cheaper, these complex rag agent like pipelines cheaper, generative feedback loops using the LLMs to transform your data, create new data, all of that will be more accessible. And so I think the, that's the, I guess there are kind of two things I want to say. The, um, so, so for me, I, so with any scale, they offer uh, fine tuning as well. And so I've personally done the test of giving it my, of giving them my credit card, and just testing it for everyone to make sure it's okay. <laughs> so I, I find, I did the experiment of fine tuning this Llama 7B uh, to do the text to weaviate GraphQL experiment I've been playing with. And so then this is my next question about open source LLMs and how I currently see this like uh, keep AI open. <laughs> I'm here at Nervous, and that's like one of the phrases. Keep AI open. It is like, um, okay. So I, I don't, I don't mean to get in the wrong camp with anyone here, but like, do I need the weights for it to be open, or is it like any skill? They don't give me the weights, but they fine tune it for me, and they give me a cheap option to serve inference. And so for me, it's just I'm thinking about how open does it need like. Like, I don't even agree with the, like, I think OpenAI is open because you get to use it. And so, you know, I, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this kind of thing? Yeah, that's a that's a great, almost a philosophical question of what, what does it mean <laughs> to be, be open? And yeah, I didn't really think about this before, but that's a good part. Like, is it, is it the weights? Is it the training data? Maybe even is it sort of the full reproducibility end to end, or is it more the hey, you get to use it for free? And and I think in in sort of just in, in software in general, there's been this open core versus real open source, where we're like the the permissiveness of of the license would play a role. And I think this kind of gets into into that camp as well, where where people are either sort of yeah saying like hey, this is technically open, but it doesn't meet my definition of what I wanted to, to, to be open. And I tend to be super pragmatic on these things. I just love that, that there's this sort of healthy level of competition between providers and some, some yes, some are, are more closed, but if, if they sort of push the state of the art and then others are, yeah, maybe doing the same thing in a more open way. And then, as you said, cost reduction is a, is a big one. So I think for if we had only a single or maybe two or so providers who would do that all behind closed doors, they could just set the prices, whatever they want. But now if we have open source or, or, or sort of more people doing that more in the open, and, and obviously we're a company that does everything in the open. So that's something that resonates with me. But if, if, if they sort of do this and show a way uh, where it's just cheaper to run, for example, that again sort of makes it better for everyone because now the 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 closed players um, now they need to make sure that their pricing is still competitive. And I think that's that's good. That's just sort of uh, it advances the whole industry and advances everything. And um, yeah, it's it's nice to see sort of some players that where, where where people go like, oh hey, they they really they need to catch up. Like, why are they so behind on on um, on AI? but them also recognizing it and now doing something, I think everyone is better off as a result. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's so amazing. I I think yeah, just the cost going down is probably the, the headline. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I imagine a lot of people seeing you know, does the seven B llama can that you know function with my rag augmentation? That you know, the paper like uh, Atlas, as we had Patrick Lewis on the podcast, that shows that with rag you can get really good question answering with these smaller models. And then yeah, I think in our whole theme of self driving databases with this whole concept, I think this model continual model fine tuning thing does potentially have an enormous role to play in the story. And now with any scale, like uh, we're, you know, making pro and I'm, I think from my machine learning background, I'm, I'm really excited about seeing fine tuning becoming more popular and, and yeah, all that kind of stuff. So uh, Eddie, and thank you so much for joining the podcast for the 123 uh, release. I think this one was just packed. It's got you know, the lazy shard loading, flat index of binary quantization, auto PQ, a default segment for PQ, which plays really nicely with that auto PQ, the auto resource limit, uh, the nodes endpoint update, and generative any scale. It's such a cool release. Thanks so much, Eddie. Thanks for having me.